Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We never, out to that point, had any long-term ambitions. I never thought I'd be doing what I was doing past the age of 40. It gradually became possible that it might continue. This is Music Made Me Do It, a podcast from Loud and Quiet magazine. I'm Stuart Stubbs, and each week I'll be speaking to people who felt compelled to start their own successful companies within the music industry. In the world of independent music, The Beggars Group is probably the biggest and most powerful company out there. It's not one independent record label, but five. Today made up of XL Recordings, 4AD, Rough Trade, Young Turks and Matador Records. The list of names to be released via these labels is quite staggering and includes Radiohead, MIA, The XX, Adele, Pavement, Pixies, Grimes, FKA Twigs, The National, The Prodigy and The White Stripes. The company has been the life work of Martin Mills, who founded Beggars in 1973, first as a mobile disco and then as a London-based record store. Alongside his friend and then business partner Nick Austin, they called the shop Beggar's Banquet after the Rolling Stones album of the same name. Martin had no idea how to open a record store, but gave it a go anyway, and he approached starting his own record label with the same spirit in 1976. Now aged 70, he remains a music fan first and foremost, which is why he's only had two days off sick since 1973. But what drove him to open his own store and then release records himself was exactly the same thing that inspires so many others to take matters into their own hands. He asked people for jobs and they all said no. Yeah, I was at uh, university in the days of student revolution and flower power, psychedelic rock and so on. So I was, uh, music was everything to me when I, when I was in my kind of late teens, well, early teens and 20s. I tried to get a job when I left university. I tried to get a job in a record company and I wrote to a bunch of different people asking if I could sweep the floor in the warehouse or something. I think the only one that replied was Trojan, the reggae label, and they said no. <laughs> no one else replied. At that point, a friend and I had been running a mobile disco for some time, which was originally called Giant Elf, but then it merged with another one called Baker's Banquet. Uh, and we had a lot of fun you know, playing parties and clubs and, and so on for, for quite a while. And then we decided to um, start a record shop, right. which sold new and second-hand records side by side so you would actually have the choice of the same record new at a certain price and the same record second-hand maybe in different conditions at different lower prices and I don't think anyone else had ever done that uh, and it worked really well and we started off with a shop in Earl's Court which then was a very kind of happening part of London mm-hmm. and then over the next few years we opened another five shops all in West London uh, so that's really where it started apart from the mobile disco sure Oh, that was around 73 yes shops yes when you set up the shops did you have <coughs> any experience in retail or anything you just no no experience in anything just winging it uh, my partner at that time then partner worked for his father's contract furnishing company uh, I just finished working for the office of population censuses and surveys putting together the statistical side of a report on the reform of the abortion law Mm-hmm. So there were n- natural bedfellows there, uh, <laughs> and no, it just came together with no, no experience, no experience in anything. We spent two two weeks shop fitting the shop ourselves. I grew this beard during those two weeks and never sh- never shaped it off. Um, and we worked out how to do it and where to get records from and how to pay bills, and off we went. Yeah, did it work instantly? Did the shop kind of? Um, I mean, record shops, I think that kind of retail never makes a ton of money. So working as in 
make a lot of money, no, but working as in keeping his head above water, then kind of just, yes. Hmm. Actually, I should have said I kind of skipped a point. We actually promoted some concerts in between before we started the record shop. We set up a pr promotions company um, and promoted concerts by people like the Crusaders and the Commodores and Southside Johnny and Graham Parker. And then Punk came along and derailed derailed all that because no one wanted to go to anything other than a um, little pub anymore. Sure. And that's when essentially you started to put, you put out your first record, which was The Lurkers. Yes, we had a we had a shop in Fulham, and we had an empty basement there, like we're sitting in here. And uh, we turned it into a rehearsal studio, and a lot of the early punk bands were rehearsing there, Generation X and so on. And one band rehearsing there was the Lurkers, and the manager of the shop started managing the band, and then he brought us in to help manage the band. And we tried to get him a record deal, but everyone had already signed one punk, punk band, and they weren't looking for two, mm. uh, so we put it out ourselves. Um, and in those days, that was a pretty radical thing to do. There was no real route map for that, although obviously these days everyone does it every yeah, day sure. of the week. Yeah. At that point, had the likes of Rough Trade and Mute. No. Uh, those hadn't come out yet. No, we were, we, were we, were, we were ahead of them. We started pretty much contemporaneously with Stiff mm -hmm. uh, and with Chiswick, which became uh, Demon. Not Demon, uh, Ace. Um, so it was the three of us really that were the first wave and then Rough Trade and Mute came in the second wave a year or two later sure and, and so this is 77 76 uh, late 76 late 76 first record I think right yeah. was that a similar thing of in the same way that you, you had no experience to make a shop but you went and made a shop and the same with the label yeah we didn't have a clue yeah um, we didn't have a clue how to put out records we didn't have a clue how to record records even and uh, we found a studio out somewhere by Heathrow and we put the lurkers into it for a, a few minutes um, and they produced cr two great tracks from that and we found a distribution company called President who used to sell styluses to distribute it and we sold an awful lot of records to the backs of our cars to stores and wholesalers and you could sell an awful lot of records doing that yeah. in, the, in those days <laughs> yeah so you were just kind of hustling yeah like and working it yeah however you however you could really did it yeah. go did it go well yeah the first record went great I mean we didn't chart or anything I'm not sure if we, if we even knew what the charts were in those <laughs> days um, but it worked well enough for well enough for us to think we could do another Lurkers record and so we did and for that one we got in Steve Lillywhite to produce it amazingly he wasn't as famous then as he is now uh, so he produced the second one and that did just as well and then we had a radical idea of signing another artist apart from the Lurkers and then it gradually grew from there it snowballed Yes, slowly to start with. <laughs> it's very slow, <laughs> yes. were, were you a punk then? Were you? I was never a punk, no. Uh, I mean, I was 27, 28 when this happened, and my partner was the same age, and neither of us were punks. So um, we actually weren't really a punk label. In our early, I, I think our, our first 20 records are not the greatest series of 20 records anyone's ever put out, to be honest. Um, and the only real punk band we had was The Lurkers. But the first album we released was a punk compilation called Streets, which was a kind of a synopsis of all of the independent punk singles that were coming out. So that was really our our principal punk credential. Mm. But well, we, we certainly embraced the spirit of punk without being punks. Yeah, because what was it then that inspired you to put out this punk band? And uh, because we could. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, we managed them and uh, we were responsible for them, and uh, it was the only way of getting their record out. Yeah. So the guy who was working above the rehearsal studio mm -hmm. was managing them yes and then he asked for your help yes and said can you help me with this yeah. Was, yeah. was that just because he thought you'd be you'd be good at it he thought we had better contacts than he did because you know we run a record shop sure or chain of record shops and uh, i suppose we did but none of them came to anything yeah okay which is why we did it ourselves so with the record shops they when were they open until when did they stay open to well, they started in, as you said, 73, and then they probably opened, we got up to six at one point, with the last one being, uh, what was the last one? Kingston. Uh, so we probably opened them over a period of five years. And then, as, as we got more interest in the record label, we paid less and less attention to the shops, and we closed them one by one, and eventually we gave the rump of it to the people that ran the Kingston shop, we just passed it on to them. Yeah. And they run Banquet Records in Kingston to this day, and yeah. do a fantastically good job at it. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so we split the beggars from the Banquet at that point. Sure. The reason to kind of 
step away from the shop was that just a time thing had you just lost a bit of interest in it well i mean for for a long time when we were running the record label i used to go and work in one of the shops on a saturday because i wanted to kind of keep my hand in and know what was what people were were, were into and so on but i think you know the, the record label especially we haven't quite kind of got to the gary neiman chapter yet but as soon as going to gary neiman story started it became that did become so all-consuming mm. that um there wasn't really mind space for anything else sure gary neiman chapter gary yeah New- <laughs> <laughs> on to gary newman um i mean so, so gary newman was the big the first big hit i guess for for beggars um we had hits before uh we had i mean the lurkers had a hit we mm. we, we put out a a lurkers album once called the lurkers greatest hit with no s <laughs> uh and we had a hit by a band called the door called desire me which was a top t- top 12 not reached number 11 i think so we did have we did have some hits so much so that we attracted the attention of warner brothers and we actually we left president and moved to ireland for distribution who were great but then they did a new deal with emi which meant they couldn't do that for us anymore so we ended up doing a deal which saved our bacon at the time with Warner Brothers just as Tubeway Army which was the predecessor to Gary Neiman started blossoming sure so that was a case of they, they were a, that was a distribution deal with them yeah and they gave us uh, we you know, we had to hire some industry insiders to get us that deal but frankly we were going bust at that point mm. and we were stretching the cash flow of the shops to run the label and uh, amazingly he got us a hundred grand check from Warner's and we thought they are insane to give us that there's not a chance we'll ever make it back and of course within a year it was all made back in spades with gary newman's success so how did you come across gary gary newman he walked into the healing shop right. or rather he didn't his bass player who's sadly now dead paul gardner walked into the healing shop and as always when someone gave us a tape we put it on over the shop sound system see what it sounded like and we really liked the sound of it and we thought he had something special i mean it was uh, it was not really punk hmm uh, even the the very the first Gary Neiman album was I don't know what you call it maybe New Wave before its time, but it wasn't really punk, and and then then he discovered synthesizers. Right. Yeah. So how many people would come into the shop and give you a tape? Oh, quite a few. Yeah. Uh, I mean, our entire early roster was from the London Borough of Ealing. Right. Okay. <laughs> a real local scene. Yes. Until we signed Johnny Thunders, who wasn't. <laughs> And you would you you'd listen to everything? Would that kind of be your yeah. you think we've got to listen to this because it might be great? Yeah. And I suppose that gets quite addictive. The yeah. kind of finding new things. Yeah, it does. It does, and it's exciting. Mm. When was it that you actually met Gary Newman? Because at that moment, you must think not only you you love the sound of the yeah. music anyway, but then you meet a guy that looks that way. But he didn't look that way when we signed him. Right. Okay. Um, I think yeah. After after the first meeting, Paul brought in Gary, and we all got on pretty well. And we decided to do a single, and then another single, and then an album, and then it blew up. And then the snowball really was rolling. Yeah, I mean, what actually happened? Literally, he was in the studio recording his first album, and he was basically a three-piece guitar band at that point. And he discovered a little mini moog in the corner of the studio, and fell in love with it. He came to us and said he came to us in the back of the shop and said I have to have a mini Moog and we said well we haven't got any money to buy you a mini Moog so we got it on our purchase and five minutes after we bought him that he discovered a poly Moog and needed that as well so we had to get that on our purchase too and then he went in and recorded um, his second album which became Replicas which was only six months after the first one and um, I remember he was finishing off in his studio in Portobello Road and I went down to hear what was happening and I heard our friends electric for the first time and I remember thinking that has to be a single that's an incredible song maybe five and a half minutes long with no obvious chorus or meaning but it's a fantastic track and it has to be a single and um, we gave it to Warners who they hadn't got to by Army on album one but they did on album two and uh, they went for it they made a picture disc of the single which in those days was uh, a way of zooming up the charts and we got him on top of the pops and well we warners got him on top of the pops and the old grave whistle test on the same week which you weren't meant to do because top of the pops was pop and old grave whistle test was albums and uh it uh flew up the charts mm. not in a, not in the way that things do these days because it took longer and then one tuesday morning knocked anita bell and anita ward ring my bell off number one wow and we had a number one single and that was in march of 79 and his immediate reaction to that was, I want to make another record and I want to change my name. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I know great. <laughs> and 
he then released the Pleasure Principle in September, and in September we had all three of our Granny and albums in the charts in the top 20 at the same time. We were kind of managing him at the time as well because he didn't have a manager, though eventually his father took that over from us and we set up his first tour, which was uh, a big venture and uh, very elaborate for those days. And uh, the previous, the time before he started that tour that we'd seen him was in the, the White Heart in Acton, where he went off stage because he got gobbed on by punks. Uh, and uh, six months later, we flew up to see him open in the Apollo in Glasgow to a, a room of 3,000 screaming fans. And at the end of it, we were all kind of standing by the stage door saying, eh, let's go back to the hotel now, buses outside, open the stage door, avalanche of fans pouring, and we'd escape in the bus with people banging on the windows as we drove down the street. It was quite remarkable. Wow. And this is only two years after you, two or three years after, after we started, you yeah. started? Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, that's quite a huge acceleration yeah. from, you know, putting out a punk single for the Lurkers to yeah. kind of pop fandom in that way. It is, and the, the third punk single from the Lurkers we put out was, was called Ain't Got A Clue, which was entirely appropriate for us <laughs> at the time. <laughs> but then, yeah, by this point, we had Warner's, you know, being our big brother. Sure. So what was the arrangement that you that you had with, with Warner's? We had a, a dual arrangement with them. One, one was a licensed arrangement, which meant that we kind of, passed records on to them for them to work and one was a distribution arrangement which was basically stuff they didn't care about which we, we worked ourselves so we had these two threads going side by side and you know Warners were great for us for, for some time and uh, but after a couple of years we got frustrated with what they didn't like and uh, because there were some things that you wanted to release and yes. they, they well and we and we could release them under the deal but they didn't really get the attention that we wanted right. them to get we felt kind of constrained I don't know if this is jumping ahead, but by that point we'd signed the Associates, who were an incredible band, and uh, but an incredible handful as well. Mm. And uh, Warners wanted all of the Associates, um, so we reached a deal with Warners whereby they took the Associates and we got our freedom, and everything became the distribution deal rather than license deal. So that gave us the ability to do what we wanted through the Warner system without them being able to tell us what to do. Right. So you kind of had the best of both worlds in that in that sense. Well, apart from we lost the associates, but um, they were a big handful. So around this around this time that fans are rushing Gary Newman's dressing room and bus, how many people are working on on the label and with you on the label? There was myself and my partner Nick um, and Steve Webben, who was who'd started the company with us, who's an old school friend and who had experience in record shops. So we'd brought him in on day one and a girl called Sue Wathan who is uh, the Pills and SU's line SU was the way she spelled Sue in our friend's electric right okay so she was very close to Gary so there were only four of you yep. working on this yeah and we had a bookkeeper Elva who arrived and paid the bills when we had any money which wasn't very often <laughs> and <laughs> until we got a Warner check right okay and I'm guessing you had like, did you have a little office somewhere? We had an office above the record shop, above the record shop in Earl's Court. Well, first below the record shop and then above the record shop. And we shared it with my partner's bloodhound, who was very gobby. <laughs> very punk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you went to do those deals with Warner then, mm -hmm. what was that like? Because suddenly you've gone from, as, as someone who's kind of, with all great respect, making up as they go along, mm -hmm. <laughs> suddenly you're at like Warner, which is a huge you know, major label, yep. and they're proper business people. Yep. Can you remember what that was like when you took that meeting to kind of broker that deal with them? Well, we, we found an industry insider called John Cooper who connected us, so he, he got the deal for us. Right. And we found an industry lawyer who knew, knew how legal contracts worked, and they basically did it for us. Right. And once, once that entree was done, it was fine, because Warners were very supportive and very helpful, and so... It was, it was a easy relationship to manage once the door had been opened and uh, officially we got signed by Dave D of Dave D Dozy B oh, really? uh, who was the A&R person at the time and in fact a guy called Mike Heap who was the sales director out in their distribution centre was the one that really crusaded for us I think mm. Gary Newman becomes Gary Newman mm -hmm. that kind of is, is all going really well yeah. who else is on your books at that point well the, 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 the tail end of the doll um the tail end of the lurkers at that point a couple of evening boys called Johnny G and John Spencer and we started picking up old records like the Johnny Thunders uh, Johnny Thunders live record I mentioned and uh, we had an Australian singer called Duffo 
we released the Spirit Potato Land album. It was it was a mishmash. Yeah, to be perfectly honest. But Newman's the one that's kind of blowing up and becoming. New, Newman a, is dominating everything, and um, we we weren't, to be frank, very much of a cohesive label. Hmm. It was very much Gary Newman and some other people. Some extra things. <laughs> and until when? When did that change? We picked up the Freeze Southern Freeze album, which in this was in ooh, a couple of years later, seventy nine probably. And uh, that was an interesting one because it was very much outside our wheelhouse because it was a new wave of British jazz funk, but it had a very similar ethos of spirit to punk. And that was an exciting record to do. And around the same time, Ivor Watts Russell and Peter Kent, who were working for us in the shops, came to us and said they would like to start a record label. And uh, that started out being called Axis, but eventually became called 4AD. And they signed Bauhaus, and, and that's when that whole wave started. Mm. And Gina you know, Jezebel was a band that Beggars assigned at that point, a Beggars Banquet, and 4AD kind of proceeded in goth tandem through the 80s, uh, starting off with those bands, and then uh, the Cockney Twins arrived, and the Cult, and the Birthday Party, and the whole 80s was for us a kind of the, the, the kind of dark wave of Beggars Banquet and 4AD. Sure. With 4AD being the more ethereal side. Not that you could call Birthday Party ethereal, actually, but a lot of the others were. Yeah. Which brings us to 4AD and that mm-hmm. kind of be- becoming part of, of Beggars. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a, a case of the founders coming to you and saying, we want to start a label and can, yeah. you, can you help us, yes. essentially? Yeah. And you just... Said yes. Just said yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Were they the first people to ask you yeah. for that kind of help? Yeah, and we gave them, I think, a £2,000 budget, which is what we started Beggars on as well. Did they have any bands at that point? They had four. They had Bowers of Bowers, Shocks... Oh, and two others. Can't remember. Sure. Okay. And they just they needed that kind of investment from you. Yeah. And that's still, you know, to to this day, a major part of what Beggars is is the very, very major, yeah. From the beginning to, yeah. to yeah. now. Yeah. And that was eighty that that, that came yes. about. In in terms of um, the success that you'd had with Gary Newman, did that put a pressure on, either a pressure or just a hunger to find something else that is kind of big and the, successful and quite and a, and a popular thing that, that will sell and become a, a huge success. We didn't have those commercial motivations at the time because we were actually doing quite well thanks to Gary but we did have artistic motivations we felt that we were pigeonholed as being Gary's label in fact a lot of people thought Gary Neiman was Beggar's Banquet and vice versa so Beggar, the Beggar's Banquet side of things felt kind of imprisoned by Gary's success which was one of the reasons why we started 4AD to get out of that and then 4AD took Beggar's Banquet itself in a different direction mm. so we headed off down a different path as a consequence of how we started 4AD Sure considering this is a label that you've started kind of not by accident but certainly just by thinking let's just give that a go Yeah. were there any major kind of bumps in the road at this point or was it or did it all feel like it just naturally it, it, was it was fairly happening. straight line at that point but frankly we were still struggling for money mm. uh, it was still financially pretty precarious even with the success of Ga- Gary Newman records yes because because it was licensed to Warners we were on a fairly sli- small slice at the margin sure it was you know we were struggling all the way all the way through the 80s financially 4D ran very separately from Beggar's Banquet in those days because mm. Ivor had such strong ideas about how music should be made and about how it should be presented in, in terms of visuals and he brought in Vaughan Oliver to obviously uh, to do the visuals. So Beggars and 4AD were really working side by side, by side for quite a long period during the 80s. Right. Well, and, and then we had Pump Up the Volume, which right. was which, Miles Pump Up the Volume, which was an enormous event for us. It was the number one single, the first, I think, independently distributed number one single. And uh, along with that came a lot of falling out, and lawsuits from Pete Waterman about samples, Right, a lot of uh, disagreement between the various component parts of Mars about who did what and what they did next, and it was an enormous success. But also sowed the beginnings, sowed the seeds of the beginnings of Ivor becoming disenchanted with the business of the music business. Right, and it was a fairly cathartic moment, really. That number one single, mm. which was not the first number one we'd had. We'd had lots by Gary Neiman at that point, but it was the first for Foydy, yeah, <coughs> and the first independently. What year was Pump Up the Volume? 87, I think. Okay. How did that affect kind of things? Because did it suddenly feel very serious and businessy? and? It felt very legal for a while. It, it had more of a personal effect on Ivor than it did on anything else, I think. Did he say with the label? 
Yes, I mean, over a period of time, he moved to California and became gradually more distanced from the label, which he brought other people in to run. And eventually he sold his half back to us because we'd become 50-50 partners about that time. He gradually became more remote from music over, over a period of time. And we kind of took over the managing the label for him and tried to continue it in, in his likeness, if you like. Mm. So as you're scaling up, mm-hmm. I, I don't really like that term, but it is a, a term, isn't it? Um, yeah. As you kind of scale up your business, was that an easy thing to do? Ish, yes. I mean, we, we, we obviously we started off being very, very punk and very disorganised. We, we, we've always been very flexible and casual and informal as a company, but we gradually obviously had to put in systems and so, and so on and operate a proper business. Mm. And I suppose we were doing quite a lot of that through the 80s and we were kind of growing up through the 80s because, you know, Bauhaus and Cocteau Twins and the Jezebels and the Cult and then the Pixies, we were becoming quite significant and serious and producing records that were having quite an effect. And we had to start accounting royalties and paying mechanical royalties and all those kind of things. So we had to, again, it was all one foot in front of the other and learning what you did on the job. So we never had any instruction or training. We just worked it out as we went along. But probably by the end of the 80s, when the cult had their really big worldwide record with Sonic Temple and the Pixies were big at that point and we'd been through Pump Up the Volume. At that point, we finally, I think, stopped being strapped for money mm. and kind of felt like, you know, we kind of broken into actually being a real business that might possibly continue for some time, which up to that point, it kind of seemed inconceivable. We never, had, up to that point, had any long-term ambitions. I never thought I'd be doing what I was doing past the age of 40. Yeah. It gradually became possible that it might continue. I suppose then came the question of when, once you've got that money, you've got that stability in, in your label of what do you do with it? How do you kind of spend it you know i'm making more records yeah was that just the way you looked <laughs> yeah. at it it's just like we, this is great we've got more money to be able to make more records and do more yeah. more bands that we like and yeah. it was as simple as that yeah did you employ a big staff team or was that like a slow it was slowly built i mean by the end of the 80s by the time you get into cult and pixies land you're probably talking about four or five in foid and 10 or 12 in beggars mm. probably at that point what's beggars at now overall worldwide nearly 200 Wow. And you've got offices in New York? Every significant country. Really? Yeah. Wow. We've got a big office in New York. We have 60 people in New York. We have you know, Los Angeles, Canada, Brussels, Amsterdam, Tokyo, Beijing. Yeah, we have offices everywhere. We, you need to have offices now. Yeah. It's at the end of the 80s when XL happens. City beat before XL. Right. We had, during the 80s, got involved with a guy called Chris Palmer who ran with his mother a, a dance record shop so her called Groove right and he had a a music royalty computer accounting idea which we got involved with him on and started a company with him called Music Calc and uh, he had a brother called Tim who also worked in the shop and Tim came to us with the idea of starting this label called City Beat and it kind of made sense in the same way as Freeze had made sense 10 years earlier because again it was from the same spirit as punk the whole kind of rave scene was from the same spirit as punk, but musically completely different. But there mm. was a, there was a compatibility, and so uh, we started releasing records. A lot of American imports we uh, released and had a big hit with House of Pain, Jump Around, Rob Bass and DJ Z Rock, and had a few kind of seminal records of that era. And then City Beat in turn started XL as an underground rave label. There was meant to be releasing EPs that weren't going to be in the charts, but big underground records. And we started completely unintentionally having big hits with almost everything we put out, with uh, SL2 and Liquid and Johnny Earl and Prodigy and so on. And XL started, this was again in 89, so XL was suddenly there alongside Beggars and Voidy doing something completely different, but kind of compatible. Mm. Was it a similar deal where they came to you and said, we want to do this thing? Yeah, Tim came to us, we set up a company which he had a call to share in. Mm. And... Uh, that lasted quite some time. I mean, eventually, after a few years, he started hiring staff and brought in Richard Russell. And then Tim decided he wanted to retire to Goa, so we bought him out, passed his shares on to Richard, and Excel uh, started becoming more than a rave label. Yeah, and now it's a force. It is indeed to be reckoned with. Yes. 
Today, XL plays a huge role in the success of the Beggars Group, not least as the record company that signed Adele in 2006. But as Martin says, even by the end of the 80s, 13 years after starting his label and despite the success of Gary Newman, the company was struggling to stay in business. And in 1989, things would get worse before they got better. Actually, one thing I should have mentioned here was I got a divorce uh, mm. from my business partner. Um, Nick and I fell out because he... Um, we had musical differences, really believed. He got very involved in new, in new age music, which sat very uncomfortably with the rest of the company. And uh, we agreed to split the company in two, and he went off with his new age label and the computer software accounting and a chunk of money, and I kept the rest. And uh, the agreement fell apart. I ended up having to sue him to complete the agreement, and we ended up in court for three months. What, what year was this? 89. Right, okay. So 89, we had, you know, big hit with, with uh, Sonic Temple my first child was born and I was spent, spent Christmas in court <laughs> and, uh, and in the end I won and yeah, became solo owner of Beggars uh, it was a very painful mm. very painful split so that was a, an enormous bump obviously but mm. it wasn't a bump that could have been avoided particularly I mean maybe it could have been handled better it liberated Beggars really to head off in where it went Tonight, mm. in the 90s really but other, other than that and, and that was obviously tied in with the money thing because obviously that court case cost a lot of money which had to be my personal money so I had to borrow, borrow borrow to do that so that was part of the kind of getting through into sole ownership and into the financial stability open pastures of the 90s yeah <laughs> I mean on that do you think because music is such a kind of personal thing in terms of taste if, you, if you're working on a label and it's your project and you want to be putting out things that you love and mm. believe in do you think it's possible to make a company like beggars that's lasted as long as it has with somebody else mm. or do you think those kind of differences are always yeah. no i think it is inevitable I, I, no i think it is and i think my partnership with rich in, in xl is a fantastic mm. example of that i mean that partnership has been going successfully for 25 years now we're, we're very different people we don't hang out with each other much we never have mm. but we're very very complementary business partners yeah and you know there are other other examples of that around i mean jeff and Jeanette at rough trade have been partners for a long long time mm-hmm. it's tricky i mean any any combination of two people in a marriage or a business or whatever is tricky and i think probably you need to be different to each other you need to complement each other mm. which i think is what's great about what, what, what richard and i have and obviously yeah. i now have lots of partners in all my labels uh, and it's a fundamental part of how beggars is structured but partnerships are very enjoyable things mm. i mean if you have the right people with the right common the common aims they can be wonderful hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mm. Did you ever have like an interest in like a business mind? No, I've acquired one. Mm. But when Nick and I started the company, he was the business one and I was the music one. Right. Over the years, I've transitioned to being the business one, as, as well as obviously I haven't lost my love of music at all. But I've I've had to become the business head, and I think uh, probably one of the reasons why Beggars has survived when labels that were just as good as us over the years haven't, like 
creation and stiff and all those kind of factory all those records is we've had a prudent business head on us mm. as well as a musical passion yeah and we've always been quite serious about the business of the business mm. uh, and attaching that to the passion of the music is it hard to rein that in with great success not just gary newman but when you've got you know a, an adele it's an issue i mean i think uh we liberated ourselves from being over-identified with Gary Neiman and when we had the enormous Adele success which was obviously beyond spectacular and we had the biggest record in the in the world for four years out of six mm. <laughs> um, Richard and myself spent a lot of time thinking ahead about how to make sure that Adele didn't take away from us what was intrinsic to us sure you know and I remember when, when Prodigy was an enormous success we had a distributor in, in Canada called uh, Koch, and uh, they were slightly wide boys. And when they made a ton of money out of Prodigy, because Prodigy went like triple platinum in Canada, suddenly they were wearing gold chains and BMWs appeared in the car park. And we said, well, yeah, this is our money that you're buying all this excess with. And, and we left them because of that. And it made, a, it made a mark on me. I think it's really important when you succeed that it you have to be sure that it doesn't change you mm. either visibly or internally and I think we did pretty well with making sure that Adele didn't change us and by keeping that success in a box marked Adele's success mm. and still being as passionate about releasing a record like Arca or Didi Dumbo or whatever it is Sure, yeah. Does it affect do you think how people consider beggars? Not that they necessarily think, oh that's, oh, that's just Adele's label, but just in the sense of thinking well, they've got loads of money, haven't they? Like, <laughs> well, you probably need to ask them. Right. Um, I mean, I, I think about that quite a lot because mm. uh, although obviously I've made a ton of money, I never intended to make a ton of money. That was never an ambition or an aim, but I have. And I don't think of myself as being the owner of a ton of money. Yeah. I think of myself as being the same person who was struggling for money. People say money is the root of all evil. It's certainly, I mean, it's my experience that when two people disagree with each other and can't understand why they disagree with each other, there's normally money in there somewhere. Mm. or lack of it yeah yeah of course but it's tricky because I I don't want us to be perceived as being a big rich company Mm. and I don't think we act like a big rich company we pay our bills on time or early but I don't think we act in any kind of predatory or abusive way because of our size and because we're financially well funded I would certainly hope not Mm. but again you'd have to ask other people (laughs) is that just because you like the flashy side of things it's just not you like, yeah it's just not me yeah and it's not this company either mm. and yeah the, the company has a certain character like we're not we're not a factory either we're not kind mm. of the, the cool heads of factory where we're not the kind of people that creation were those companies both have very very different different cultures there's a very unique culture to beggars and its labels i think so what did the 90s hold for beggars uh for beggars banquet it held the charlatans mm-hmm. who uh a big, big signing for us. Probably our first ever really competitive signing. Yeah, that was obviously in the days of Manchester, and it was the Stone Roses, the Charlatans, and the Happy Mondays, who were the three big bands, and we fought very hard to sign them. I remember very clearly Roger Truss, who was our A&R person at the time, were going up to see them play in Manchester one evening, where there was an enormous storm blowing, and all the uh, radio reports saying, stay off the roads, don't go anywhere near any high-sided vehicles, or so on, and uh, we looked at each other and said, we can't not go, can we? So we went and no one else did. All the other labels chasing them stayed home. And we went out to Manchester through the storm <laughs> and signed them as a direct result and had an awful lot of success with them. And we had a bumpy road with them, to be honest, because um, their first album was number one. The second album was a relative disaster and charted, I think, number 23. And then the band got pissed off at us and wanted to leave. And I had a very, very difficult meeting with them again in Manchester where I basically said, you can't leave we're going to stick with it we're going to make it work and we came up with a plan uh, which involved releasing one to another North Country Girl and then their third album which was back to number one and mm. we actually managed to pull it back which I think is a great compliment to them and us and all parties but they were so they were a big part of our 90s um, 4AD was very much on a Pixies uh, throwing muses trip at that point XL was obviously blowing up with Prodigy. XL was still very much a dance label in the 90s. Mm. So it was a pretty pretty good time for us, really. Yeah. Because you were so established by the 90s and you had proven yourself not to just have, like, one hit, but you'd had 
more and more success and you were quite a stable as you say you had money for the first time is it around then that i presume beggars has been you've been offered multiple times to sell your company to mm. other record labels yeah when did that first offer come in uh, probably towards the end of the 80s okay i mean there there were a few outside people i mean pretty much every major label always approached us and said if you ever want to sell i think of us first Richard Branson used to invite me around for a cup of tea to try and flog me his tape copying services and ask me if I'd sell the company. And I always said no. And people stopped asking by the end of the 90s, I think, because people realised that uh, it wasn't for sale. You didn't want to sell. And I think if you're an independent company, you only really ever sell if you need the money. Mm. I can't really think of anyone that sold for reasons other than financial. And we weren't in it for the money. Mm. I, you know, the last thing I would have wanted was a pile of money and a and a yacht that'd be horrible yeah <laughs> and I suppose and, and no business <laughs> no business I suppose if you because yeah as you say you were doing well so you didn't you didn't need to sell now obviously you would never sell no what do you think you'll do when you're done I will carry on till I die in the saddle yeah yep because today you still you work like a full-time job on beggars yeah. i mean obviously you're in a position where if you wanted you could even if you didn't want to sell your company you could there's still plenty of people to tick it over and you don't have to yeah. come to work but do yeah. you do you come to work most days every day every day a week yeah i think i've had uh, two days off six since i started it wow that's I incredible had, and i had a period when i had an operation so i was off, off for that period but apart from that no, I mean, I, I love coming. I, I always think that if anyone who works for me doesn't want to come in on Monday morning, they should move over with someone that does. Mm. And I include myself in that. Sure. Well, why would one not love it? No, exactly. Yeah, no, I can I can imagine. And, you know, it's an, it's an incredible thing that you've built up. I mean, it's a dumb question to say, did you ever think it would become this? No. But did you ever think it would stop? Was there a point where you thought this would this can't last for a long time i never thought it would continue mm. i always thought that when i was 40 along the you know along the lines of pete townsend and my generation i thought when i was 40 i'd stop doing it and go and research something and write a book right i don't think my brain's up to that these days so i never thought it would continue and it always amazed me that in putting one foot in front of the other we went down the road we went down but i think bizarrely that looking back now those 40 years if I wanted the company to be as successful as it is today, and I'd known we'd have been in hindsight what steps to take, I'd probably have taken pretty much the same steps as I took, mm. which is quite remarkable, really. Yeah. Because uh, even with a, the lawsuit and yeah, and that well, thing. yeah. I mean, there was there, there was there was never a plan. By the end of the nineties, we were probably beginning to become a, a proper global business. We were moving from license deals around the world to having our own offices around the world started off in France and started off in America actually then moved to France and gradually built gradually built a worldwide network the digital world started arriving in the late 90s and we had our whole catalogue up for download by 1999 and that obviously was a globalisation of our business so in the process of the 90s and before we got to the musical successes we had in the 2000s we became not a kind of UK cottage industry but a global company capable of releasing in records and having success through its own auspices everywhere in the world mm. are you someone who's good at kind of relinquishing control in, in, in considering it's your company and you started it i've become good at that I, okay. I used to be shit at it as i think everyone is to start with because delegating is the most difficult thing and the most difficult thing about managing a business is always managing the people mm. um, because people are individual and you know we've always hired unusual people so i've be I become good at, and again you should ask other people but i think i've become i've become quite good at that yeah into the 2000s then so into the 2000s excel had an incredible 10 years mm -hmm. excel moved away from dance music and had successes with people like baddie drum boy mm -hmm. uh, white stripes and within dance music basement jacks prodigy continuingly Dizzy Rascal put out some incredibly influential records. So during the first ten years of that of this century, XL became what it is now, if you like, kind of pre Adele, and became not not just a dance label, but a label, the, the music label that people perceive it is now. Uh, Foy D, by that point, I bought out Ivo at, at, at his 
request and 4AD had become the 4AD of Bonnie Bear and Bear Root and TV on the radio as well as the Bear Root, as well as the 4AD of uh, the Cocktail Twins. Beggar's Banker was languishing a bit at that point and so we eventually parked it and mm-hmm. put it into under ice and moved it into 4AD and probably equally significantly we became partners in Matador in 2002. That was a big step for us because um, obviously they're an American label, very much a peer of ours. We were a small American operation up to that point. We were six people and they were 30. And we created what we, what we saw as a partnership with them, whereby they became part of the Beggars Group. And at that point, we created the Beggars Group of labels. So Beggars have become an umbrella for all the labels rather than a single label. And Matador became part of that. And in America, it was the beginning of success for us because um, we became a local label rather than an interloper, if you like. Hmm. And that was a big, big move for us in retrospect. But as luck would have it, as soon as we got involved with them, they had an enormous record with Interpol, mm. which was actually kind of in the works before we got involved. So we just can't claim any credit for it, but it was it, it turned things around for them. And our American operation became, during that decade, a very important part of our business. And then the final piece, the well, penultimate piece of the jigsaw, we became partners in Rough Trade. Mm-hmm. Rough Trade the label as opposed to Rough Trade the shots, which we were already small partners in, and got into business with Jeff and Jeanette and brought everything that Rough Trade has to the group. And then the, the, the final fifth spoke of the wheel was the development of Young Turks as, as a sub-label of, of XL to the point where it could stand on its own feet as it does now. Mm. And that that's the fivesome we have today. Yeah, and they're an incredible five as well because they kind of all serve their own purpose and mm-hmm. they, they they have uh, amongst them you're kind of ticking all sorts of boxes you have like huge chart success with adele i mean it can't get any bigger yep. but xl also have like you know radiohead yeah you've got like young turks with XX. the xx and kamazi washington exactly and then Semper. 4ad is still very much got you know, it's got a new Beirut record and Bonivere and all of those kind of things. Yeah, under the national. Under the national. What is there left for beggars to achieve? Well, we've achieved beyond my wildest dreams anyway. I think we've always been driven by the artists we find and the music we make. And uh, what there is for us to achieve is finding new great artists who take us all to new heights. I think as simple as that. People often ask me what connects everything we do, what makes an artist an artist that belongs with us. For years, I always said they're artists that are unique. They want to have resources rather than be told what to do. They want supportive and sympathetic partners, and they all have their own vision. A lot lot of them turned out to be Catholic, and a lot of them were kind of fighting up from underneath somewhere. But it struck me standing in a show a couple of years ago what the difference is, and I realized that that when you see our artists live, almost without exception, they don't, don't have any front lighting. All the, all the lighting in classic Bauhaus style is from the back or from above. There's no front lighting. Right. Very rare you see an artist on a beggar's label using follow spots. Right. Even like a Queen's of the Stone Age or an Adele, you know, don't normally do that. Yeah. And it struck me that that kind of describes the kind of artists we work with very well. They don't like being in the spotlight. Mm. And they're with us because we won't force them to commercial success that's not right for them. We won't make them do what they don't want to do, and we will allow them to not appear on top of the pops. Obviously, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but Prodigy, for example, would never appear on top of the pops, and you know we always supported that decision. Mm. And I think that d- defines the kind of artists that um, that work for us. They're the ones that don't like to be in the spotlight, and also that means they probably are not particularly keen on doing promotion either. Yeah, and t- and talking about themselves and talking about what they've done. And I think that's a common thread. And actually, from that, from that thought emerged another thought which is more on a kind of a global independent label basis and most of the people that that run independent labels are also self-deprecating in some way and the most independent labels are named self-deprecatingly mm. like if we look at beggar's banquet mute virgin sub pop most independent label names have got something modest about about what they're called yeah and uh, i think that's largely true of the people that own and run independent labels as well I always said I think most people around independent labels were shit at sport at school <laughs> and we're always the people who are picked last in teams and that gives us the backbone and the fibre to actually to actually defy the odds. Yeah. 
and do things your way. Yeah. If you were to start a label now in the modern world with streaming and and the way everything is now, what how how do you think you'd do it? I always say to people, don't do it for the money, mm. because if you do do it for the money, that's absolutely the wrong motivation. You've got to do it for the love of the music. And I think the beauty of today's market is there are a million different ways of doing it. I don't think there's any particular wrong or right way of doing it. You can sign to a major if you want to achieve a certain kind of thing. You can sign to an independent if you want to do and achieve another kind of thing. Or you can increasingly do it yourself, hmm. either completely on your own or through a services company. And I think that kind of breadth of opportunity is great. And uh, certainly some labels see it as a threat to themselves and I see it as a challenge to be good. Music Made Me Do It is produced by Dream Team and Loud and Quiet and edited by Emma Snook. For more information, please visit loudandquiet.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app to receive all future episodes. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.